Revelation chapter 15. I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name, and they held harps given to them by God, and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked and I saw the heaven in heaven, the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues. They were dressed in clean, shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chest. Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. No one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Do you pray with me? Lord, we come to you today in your house to worship you and to honor you. May we take these next several moments to honor you with our full attention on your word you have given us today through the book of Revelation. Help us to put away the distractions of the world, to focus on what you're telling us today. Lord, as they hear my voice and as I preach to them today, May you speak to their heart. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So before we get to the seven bowls of the wrath of God, I want to take a few minutes to discuss chapter 14 um, and the army of the Lamb. We were going to talk about it last week, but I ran out of time, so I didn't. So I moved it to this week. So you don't just get to skip chapter 14. Uh, We're still going to talk about it just a little bit more briefly uh, than we would have. Uh, But chapter 14 sets up chapters 15 and 16, so it's necessary for me to talk a little bit about 14. But in case you're coming in, right before we get to 14, in case you're coming in, this is the first time that you're here in Revelation. Um, This is the first time that you've been a part of this series. You've missed 13 chapters. And so I want to give you just a few ground rules that we, we gave at the very beginning of this series, just to remind you or to tell you for the first time. Revelation was a letter written to a group of people in a different culture at a different time than we are in now. And since we know that God's word is unchanging throughout all time and throughout all cultures, it cannot mean for us what it didn't mean to them. And so honestly, if you take away just that simply with approaching scripture, especially Revelation, any type of apocalyptic literature or letters, you're, you're way ahead of a lot of Christians today. It cannot mean for us what it didn't mean to them. So the images that we see in Revelation, it's so easy for us to get caught up in it. right? We can look and we can think about all the images and what that might look like and when it will happen and what will happen. And, and we can often get distracted by all the images and not focus on what they're trying to teach us. Because images were used as a teaching tool in their day. 
So these images that you see in Revelation that are confusing and you're not really trying, you're trying to process what they even mean. They're trying to teach you and to provoke something in you so that you feel what you're being taught. So for example, Satan in chapter 12 is described as a fiery red dragon. Right? So in us, if we're at war with a fiery red dragon, it provokes something in us that if there's a fiery red dragon coming after your friends and your family and your children, they're trying to devour them, but they're also, it's also trying to devour you. It's a little bit more of a, a fearful response. You, you kind of have a respect for the power. But if you know that something can overcome that dragon, which we know as Jesus, if we know that Jesus can overcome that dragon and it's facing our friends and our family, that image provokes something in us to say, I need to go and tell them that Jesus will overcome the dragon before they're devoured. Right? You would want to go and save them if you know that the dragon could be destroyed by something that they could believe in. Whereas if we're, we're using what Hollywood has given us when it comes to Satan, it's a little less intimidating, to be honest. Right? A fiery red dragon coming after your, your family and your friends is a little bit different of an image than some guy with a bunch of red paint all over him and a red cape and maybe a, a, a stuck-on horn or two coming after your children because, uh, I mean, honestly, you might be like, I can take that guy. But a fiery red dragon, you're going to need some help. Uh, when Chloe and I were talking about this last night, about the images and everything, she said, when I, when I see the dragon in my mind, I think of like a knight in shining armor in medieval times trying to slay the dragon to save the city. Right? This is what uh, it's supposed to do for you. It's supposed to provoke something in you because it's not just a movie where, where there's some guy with horns and a pitchfork. Right? It, it's, it's an actual thing. It's an actual danger. It's something that's very dangerous and something that we know the knight who can overcome. We, we know the king who can overcome the dragon and his name's Jesus. Right? And so a false prophet doesn't seem like a big deal to us. Right? They can believe what they want to. We're going to continue to believe what we want to. But the image of a beast with the false prophet trying to devour you and your family is a much different image than just... Uh, I, I was going to say Fred, but I know a Fred. Um, that just some guy down the road who, who just happens to believe something different. There's a lot more danger with it. And these images are to help you get into the fight of faith to wake you up to the reality of the war that you're in. And if you're a follower of Christ, the book of Revelation is to encourage you and give you hope because you have already won because of Christ. So as you fight your battles on your knees, praying with the Word of God open, studying the Word of God, listening to God, putting your full attention on God through worship, it's in the end that you'll stand in victory with God, your Creator. And this is what it's meant to do. Revelation is meant to give you hope so that you continue to fight. But for those who aren't followers of Christ, this book is meant to invite you from under the wrath of God. Invite you in and say, you don't have to live under the wrath of God anymore. You can come on in. And we have a place for you. We have a seat for you at the table with Christ. It's to invite you to live life abundantly through the repentance of your sins. And that way you can also stand in victory with Christ and with us who are in Christ. Which leads me to another ground rule. 
Revelation is not a linear timeline like we would love for it to be. It's not that um, the seven seals happen and then the seven trumpets happen and then the seven bowls happen. We're not, it's not a code that we're trying to figure out, okay, which of the seals, the trumpets, or the bowls are we in right now, right? Monkeypox is going around. It, you might be thinking, we're in bowl number one, right? Because bowl is, is sores over your skin, right? So it, you're, you're constant, people are constantly trying to figure out when things are happening. And the reality is, that that's not what's important. What's important is what is happening because God is in it. What's important is that there is this wrath of God that is real and it's just, and it is coming for all of the people who take the mark of the beast. And us as Christians, we aren't under this wrath anymore, but we are meant to go and harvest the people under the wrath so that they don't experience what Christ experienced on the cross. Something far worse than that. Well, that's not necessarily true. And so what we should do is be more concerned with what John sees next rather than what happens next, what, what we think happens next. Now, a few weeks ago, we talked about how, num how numbers are a symbol for something. Right? 666 is the mark of the beast. It's the number of... Uh, the beast's name, and it's a symbol of mankind being completely incomplete. So six is one less than seven. Seven is completeness. Six is incompleteness. And so that, since there's three of them, they are completely incomplete. Whereas God's judgment found in the book of Revelation, there's seven seals, there's seven trumpets, and there's seven bowls. So that makes out the number 777, which is completely complete or perfectly complete, and this is the wrath of God. Now in chapter 14, you see this 144,000 that are standing beside the Lamb of God. Now for some uh, Christians, uh, some denominations, they believe that only 144,000 people in all of history are going to inherit the kingdom of God. Now I don't think that's true at all. I think what uh, they're, they're taking a, a number and a symbol and an image of something and making it literal. And so 144,000 represents all who accepted Christ while they were here on earth. So it's all the followers of Christ. So if you're a follower of Christ, you're in the 144,000. Congratulations. Right? You're in the army of God. And this army is singing and praising God throughout Revelation 14. And these are the ones who are praising God in the throne room that we talked about several weeks ago. Now what John sees next, after he sees this 144,000, is the proclamation of these three angels, which consists of proclaiming the gospel to every nation, tribe, language, and people, and a call to repent and worship God. The second angel proclaims that Babylon has fallen and calls out the sins of the people, saying that these sins will come with a consequence, and it will be the wrath of God. And the third angel proclaims what the wrath of God will be. Torment with fire and sulfur forever and ever. It says there is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast or have the mark of his name. So these three angels kind of encompass what we're about to talk about in 15 and 16 of God constantly pursuing his people, making himself known to his people. That's the first angel. God makes himself known to the people. The second angel, 
God tells them, you have sinned. You're sinned against me. You need to repent or my wrath will be on you. And so he invites them to come and live abundantly, to come out from under the wrath of God and into a relationship with him. There's the second angel. And then the third angel says, if you don't, if you choose not to, if you choose not to accept this invitation into life abundantly and you choose not to follow me, then you're going to be under the wrath and you're going to be tormented forever and ever. What John sees next is the harvest. So this harvest um, happens uh, in, in two different ways, but for the sake of time, I'm just going to sum it up for you. The harvest is always presented in a positive light. It's never a negative thing. The, uh, it's the harvest of God's people. And so what this harvest is doing is harvesting them out from under the wrath of God and into the presence of God so that when the time comes for God's wrath to be made complete, the people of God are protected from it. And it's because of Christ coming and harvesting his people. It's because of me and you telling people and introducing them to the Savior of the world that we are also taking part in harvesting those people so that they don't experience the wrath of God. Now, when does this harvest take place? I'm glad you asked because that's been a question for, for decades, for centuries, for thousands of years. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Luke chapter 10, verse 2 says, He told them, meaning Jesus told them, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. Jesus, 90 years before this was written, 2,000 years to where we stand today, said the harvest is plentiful. The harvest is ready. Go harvest. See, Jesus was telling us, I, I believe Jesus was telling us, the harvest is here. Right? It's here right now in 2022. It's up to us to go and be the workers, to go and be the laborers that go and harvest. Right? So this harvest of the people that we're finding in Revelation is happening here and now. But I want you to be prepared. Because when you go and harvest these people, right? that's probably weird language if you're not used to biblical language. When you go and share the gospel with these people, when, they, when you go and tell them of all the good things that God has done for them, there's going to be something uncomfortable that will probably end up in your conversations. If God is so loving, why would he send people to hell? If God is so loving, why would he, if he's such a loving God, why would he punish them so greatly? So let's talk about the wrath of God. Seven bowls are the imagery of the wrath of God and on the people who turn from him and turn towards the, the beast of the world. It's the ones who have sinned and they haven't been washed clean by Jesus. They haven't accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior. They're living on their own. But to understand the seven bowls better, I want you to see something. And that's this. The seven bowls and the seven trumpets line up almost perfectly together. Seven bowls and the seven trumpets line up almost perfectly together. Now, there's a difference in imagery. There's a, a few uh, differences in there, but, but the overall meaning of them both line up almost perfectly. And now let me show you how. The first trumpet and the first bowl affect life on earth. 
The second trumpet and the second bowl both affect the sea or the oceans. The third, the rivers. The fourth, the sun. The fifth, the pit or the throne of evil. And the sixth, the river of Euphrates. And I say that to tell you that what we're seeing in the seven bowls, we've already seen through the seals and through the trumpets. And so each of the seven seals, the seven trumpets, and the seven bowls are people rebelling against God, God pursuing them to wake them up and to receive life abundantly through repentance, pull them back into a relationship with him, and then his wrath is released on the people. So the seals, the trumpets, the seals, and the bowls, are the same thing that's happening. It's just written from a different perspective. So the seals are written from the perspective of a suffering church, which is why they come after the letters to the seven churches. So these seven seals are written from the perspective of what the church will see when these things take place. The trumpets are written from a perspective of sinful men and women who do not intend to repent. So the trumpets are, this is what, People who are unwilling to repent, this is what they will see. This is how they will see everything playing out. The bowls are written from the perspective of the throne of Jesus. And so much as we don't want to look at the wrath of God, because if you read it, if you really look into the trumpets, which we did a few weeks ago, if you really look into the bowls, you really start to kind of want to look away from it. You're like, I don't want that to be in the Bible. I don't want God to, to pour out his wrath on people. That seems a little too harsh. But I'm here to tell you that the wrath of God is real and it's just. And so look where this takes place. I, I, I know we're, we're kind of all over the place right now, but it'll make sense in the end. right? Look at where this takes place. The tabernacle of the covenant law. This is uh, from chapter 15. This is where uh, this perspective is from with the seven bowls, the tabernacle of the covenant law. Now this place is also found in the book of Numbers in the Old Testament. And for them at that time, it was the place where the presence and the moral law of God dwelled. He existed in this place. So no one, was, no one ever dared to go to this place in this tabernacle because this is where the presence of God was. And so for us, as we're reading that, this is imagery of saying this is written from the presence of God, the, the holiest of holies, uh, the most perfect of all things that we consider perfect, right? This is the, the creator of the universe, the one who, who sent his son to die for us so that we could live with him. This is written from his perspective. And it's this holiness, this perfection, this beauty, this presence and the moral law of God that is meant to lead to human flourishing. It's not meant to lead to human, human suffering. It's meant to lead to human flourishing. And with this perspective that we're looking from, what does this necessarily mean to you? Well, most people don't think that the crime fits the punishment. So if someone lies, if I, if I tell a little white lie, I might not think that that deserves all of eternity in hell and torment and judgment, right? And this is probably something that you'll encounter with gospel conversations with people. You'll, you'll find that people will say, well, if God is so loving and all I've done is lied, then, then why is my punishment so great? Why does it seem like hell is such a much harsher punishment 
for the crime that was committed. It seems too extreme. You know, as if we're all that we're guilty of is lying. But you get the picture. And this is one of the reasons why we're so uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God. Because if God is so loving and so forgiving, why does it seem like such a harsh punishment? Well, that's because it's from our perspective. From a, a perspective of a sin-filled human. This is our perspective. It seems too harsh. That's where the trumpets come in. The trumpets presented in a very, very harsh way. It's because that's how we perceive it. But if we're talking about the perspective of God, who is the holiest of holies, who is the most perfect, the most beautiful, it's a little bit different of a perspective. If you think about it, when you look at and you study when angels encountered people in the Bible, the men and women that encountered angels in the Bible, and angels are just a glimpse, a mere reflection of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God. And in their presence, the men and women always fall down in fear as if they are going to die. And it's because just a mere glimpse at the righteousness of God destroys you. It, it makes you afraid because you feel like you're going to be destroyed in that moment. And it's because the righteousness of God overcomes any unrighteousness, destroys any unrighteousness, just as the light penetrates the dark. And there's no more darkness. When you have a light on in your house, there's no more darkness. right? Any of your power went out the other day when we had those storms? Yeah, we were, Chloe and I were watching TV and it just went completely dark. And then when all the lights came back on, there's no more dark. It's the same way with God. That when God's righteousness comes in contact with unrighteousness, the unrighteousness is no more. It is completely destroyed. And so us as sinful human beings, when we see even a glimpse of the righteousness of God, we feel shame. We feel as if we should die because of our unrighteousness. So from our perspective, we aren't looking at the people next door. right? I'm not looking at my neighbors and saying, I mean, I'm a pastor. I'm more holy than they are. Right? It, it's not that perspective, right? which a lot of people do. We look at the other people in our life and we're like, okay, I'm holier than them. I want to be more like this person because they're like extra holy. And, and we start doing that thing. But really what we should be doing is looking to God and seeing how we compare next to him. Charles Spurgeon said it this way, the nearer a man lives to God, the more intensely he has to mourn over his own evil heart. What that means is the closer you start standing next to God, the more you realize how unworthy and how unholy and unrighteous you truly are. Which is why some people, when they start walking towards God, they start backing out because they don't feel good about themselves anymore. They start looking at themselves and God reveals things inside of them and starts revealing their unrighteousness. And when they do that, people are like, uh, you know, it, it's fine, it's fine. I, I'm, I, I don't, I, I'm not as bad as you say that I am, God. I, I'm not unrighteous. I'm not unworthy. And so they, they walk away. And even though it's true, the closer that we do get to God, the more that we realize that we're not holy, that we are sinful. But the reality is, is that the closer you get to God, the more you appreciate what Jesus did for you on the cross. 
And that's the main thing. Is that the closer you get to God, the more unholy you feel, but the more you appreciate and love God for sending his son to die on the cross for you so that he could wipe away all of your unrighteousness and make you righteous before God. He wiped away your unrighteousness. He cleansed you from your sins and he made you holy. Not because you're awesome. It's simply because Christ is in you. And so how is this wrath of God revealed? Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 20. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wicked people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what, has, what, may, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them, for since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. What this is saying, what Romans is saying, uh, what Paul is saying through the book of Romans is God made himself known to the people and the people said, no thanks. God said, I, I love you. Here I am. And the people said, nah, that's okay. We don't want you. You don't have to grow up in church to know that there's something divine. Just look at people outside of church. They're, they're constantly looking because they know that there is something divine. You don't have to grow up in church to know that there's sin, that there's some type of moral code that we all follow. Right? I took a few psychology classes which had nothing to do with religion at all, and they all will tell you that there is something inside of you that, that you live by. It's your moral code. Right? It's part of your ethics. So we all know that there's something, there's a line that can be crossed. There's a line that can be crossed. We all know that there is some type of moral code out there, that, that when we break that moral code, we are sinning, right? It's that something inside of us that when we do something, even if we don't think it's wrong in the moment, that afterwards we were like, oh, I, I really shouldn't have done that. I really shouldn't have said that. I really shouldn't have, have acted that way towards that person. I, 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 it was wrong. But when that happens, what do we do? We suppress it. We suppress the truth. We, we go to our addictions, and we go to being indifferent. We go to being apathetic and lazy in our walk with God. We go to sin, and we believe the accusations of the enemy that we're okay without God. Right? We do all of this suppressing so that it's our truth. That even though I felt a little bit bad, if I continue to do it, it won't feel as bad later, and, and it will become something that's not bad anymore. I don't understand why it's so bad, so I, I, maybe if I just keep doing it, and I get deeper into it, then I won't feel bad about it anymore. So we suppress this truth. What this means is that people like us, all of us, uh, I've done it, we decide that we're a better God than God himself. And so when we suppress the truth, we start accusing God for things that we're doing to ourselves, that others are doing to us. We start accusing God because we think that our truth is better than his truth. We think that, that our ways are better than his ways. And I've seen it so many times the past few years, everything being my choice, my life, my truth. What it all boils down to is people trying to be their own God, 
of their own life, living on their own pathetic throne, boasting about their truth and suppressing the truth of God's word. And then us as the church, we sit back and we wonder why people in our world today are confused about gender, sexuality, and murder. It's because we suppress the truth. John 3.16 will be thrown at you. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. If God loves the whole world, then why would he... Why would he punish us? You know, if God is so loving, like we love John 3.16. We love John 3.17. But we don't necessarily love John 3.19. It says, this is the judgment. Reading from the ESV. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their works are evil. What John 3.19 says is that no one under the wrath of God is accidentally under there. They chose it. They chose to be under the wrath of God. We saw the light. We know the light. The light revealed itself to us, and we turned to the dark. The light loved us. He didn't want us to live in the dark anymore, so he, he sent his son to die for us so that we could live in the light again. And the people looked at it and said, I love the dark. God's wrath isn't about people being okay and you being innocent. It's about us choosing the darkness over the true love of the light. This wrath is not what we might think of God hating us and just wanting to beat us all up. It's because he is holy. And since he is the light, he will penetrate all darkness and darkness will cease to exist and if you have the mark of the beast, if you have the mark of darkness on your life, you will also cease to exist. His holiness destroys anything and everything unrighteous. And this wrath is pointing at the dragons and the beast. It's not pointed necessarily to us. We just get caught up in it because we chose to worship the beast and the dragons. If we're not following Christ, if we're not choosing God, if we're not loving God and pursuing our relationship with him, then we're being either indifferent or we're blatantly choosing the wrath of God. Let me tell you, the beast wants us to be indifferent. He wants us to just kind of sit and try to play both sides. There aren't two sides. You're either with God or you're not. Either you are with God or, or you're under the wrath of God. But I do have good news. His wrath will be finished forever. His wrath will be finished forever. Revelation chapter 16, verse 17. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Now there's one other person in the Bible that comes to mind when I hear it is done. Right? Some of you are kind of nodding your head. You, you know this Jesus guy that on the cross said, It is finished. Listen to me, Christians. For the Christians in the room and online, the wrath is finished for you. It's no more. You're not living under the wrath of God anymore. You don't have to worry about all this. You've been harvested. You are protected. The wrath of God is finished for you. 
because of what he did on the cross. It's finished for you because he said it's finished. So if you're out from under the wrath of God, keep on fighting. Don't suppress his love. Don't suppress his mercy. Don't suppress his grace. Don't suppress his truth. Keep pursuing him above all things. Keep worshiping him above all things. Put your full attention on him because you can't afford to take your attention off of him. Now for you who, who aren't followers of Christ, whether in this room or online, the wrath of God can be over for you and it can be finished for you today. It can be done today. Just one decision. And as I close today, I, I want to open up the altar for you. Just don't get wet with the paint. I want to open up the altar for you. Come to the altar. If you've been moved today and, and, and you just, you, you want to take some time, you want to physically move up to the altar and praise God that you've been saved, that you're not under this wrath anymore, that, that God has come and harvested you, that is something to celebrate every single day. And so if you feel moved to come to the altar, I invite you to come to, to just praise him because he's redeemed you and that you are saved, you are redeemed, you are forgiven. And come to the altar if you might have been living in a place where you're, you're suppressing some of the truth and you're keeping some of your own truth and, and you've been suppressing this truth of God and you want to come before God and say, God, I want to pursue you again. I invite you to come up to the altar. Make that physical move up to the front and say, God, I just want to take this moment and I want to lift up my praises to you because I know I am redeemed. I've been suppressing this truth for so long and I don't want to do that anymore. I want your truth to reign in me. I want your light to be shining through me. And maybe you've never given your life to Christ and you recognize that you're full of sin and you need to repent, and you accept that invitation into life abundantly with Christ, so I invite you also to come to the altar. And I invite all three uh, of the, the representation so that it's between you and God. It's between you and God if you're, if you're repenting of your sins or if you're praising Him. So that no one in here can look at you and say, oh, well, they're, they're asking for repentance. We're not going to know. So you're welcome to come up to the altar. Listen, it is finished. Christ has come. Christ has lived. Christ has died in your place. He took the wrath of God so that you could come out from under it. Christ has rose again so that you could walk in a new life where you could be free from the wrath of God and walk confidently in His mercy and His grace and His love. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you today in your house wanting to know you more. That's why we're here. We're here to worship you. Lord, I pray that you work in someone's heart today through this message that they stop suppressing this truth, that the truth of your word that they give it all to you and they accept this invitation into life abundantly through repentance for the first time in their life or the first time in a long time in their life. And Lord, if any of us in our, in our life have gone astray, we started suppressing your truth and going our own way, accepting our own truth, and, and if we've started running back to the darkness, 
Lord, I just pray that right now in this moment you, you pull us into the light again. And that we repent of whatever is keeping us from a, a pure and holy relationship with you. Lord, our, our world and our country, our community, uh, friends and family, we're all broken. And we're in need of you, our Savior. Use us. Us who have been called by your name. Us who are under out from under the wrath of God and are following you day by day. Use us to speak the truth of your word to those still under the wrath of God so that they will be saved. For we know the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. May we at Shady Grove General Baptist Church be the workers who are willing to be sent to go and harvest. We love you and we thank you for all that you've done for us and for who you are. For it's in Jesus' name, amen.